0: There was a stone at the western side of the Holy of Holies on which the ark was placed, and in front of it there was the jar of manna as well as the staff of Aaron. When Solomon built the temple, knowing it would at the end be destroyed, he constructed underneath a place where to hide the ark in deep and winding secret tunnels, At the command of King Josiah it was concealed in the place which Solomon had built. Welcome to Bible 365, episode 120, The Temple Treasure. I'm Mayor Soloveitchik. We return today to the 1870s journey of William Seward, Lincoln's Secretary of State and friend, to the Holy Land. The memoir of Seward's trip, edited by his son, describes his traveling parties witnessing the Jewish mourning for the Temple, which took place at the Western Wall on Friday, preceding the Sacred Sabbath, when mourning does not take place. Quote, Our last day at Jerusalem has been spent, as it ought to have been, among and with the Jews, who were the builders and founders of the city, and who cling the closer to it for its disasters and desolation. For centuries, we do not know how many, the Turkish rulers have allowed the oppressed and exiled Jews the privilege of gathering at the foot of this wall one day in every week, and pouring out their lamentations over the fall of their beloved city, and praying for its restoration to the Lord." Seward's book strikingly informs us that his party watched the Jews cleave to Jerusalem, and it is clear that while the glory that was the temple has not existed for some time, nevertheless, for Seward, it remains the Jerusalem that was, and that I think he believes will be, again. As an introduction to this section of the memoir, the book cites a verse from Ezekiel, and the name of the city shall be from that day forward, the Lord is there. The implication is that so long as Jews still venerate the site where the temple was, so long as they believe that God still dwells there, then God still dwells there. Jerusalem, Jewish Jerusalem, is for Seward a source of inspiration and of faith, and that is why the conclusion of the Book of Kings, which describes the destruction of the temple, can also inspire us to ponder the Jewish refusal to forget the temple. One of the central questions, not openly addressed in the Book of Kings, is the location of the Ark of the Covenant after Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians destroyed Jerusalem. The reason for wondering about this is obvious. After all, on the one hand, A central purpose of building the temple in the first place was to provide a place for the Ark that served as the throne of God. Thus King David had proclaimed, Behold, I dwell in a palace while the Ark of God's covenant is still in a tent. And as we have seen, it was upon bringing the Ark of the covenant into Solomon's temple that the temple truly became the dwelling place of the divine. But we also know, that after the destruction of Solomon's sacred structure by the Babylonians, there was no ark in the second temple. A menorah was there, an altar of incense existed. Everything else essential was there, but not the ark. So where did it go? The matter is debated in the Talmud. According to one opinion, the Babylonians themselves captured the ark of the covenant and took it with them to Babylon. But there is another opinion offered, that this sacred object was hidden before the Babylonians arrived. Interestingly, when we look at the biblical description of Nebuchadnezzar's forces taking temple vessels, nary a mention of the ark is made. First, there is chapter 24, verse 12, describing the exile of King Jehoiachin. And Jehoiachin, the king of Judah, went out to the king of Babylon, he and his mother and his servants and his princes and his officers. And the king of Babylon took him in the eighth year of his reign. And he carried out thence all the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house and cut in pieces all the vessels of gold which Solomon king of Israel had made in the temple of the Lord, as the Lord had said. This is chapter 24. Then there is the actual destruction of the temple during the reign of the last king of Judah, Zedekiah, Zedekiah. This is chapter 25, verses 8, 9, and 13 through 16. And in the fifth month, on the seventh day of the month, which is the nineteenth year of King Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came Nevuzaradan captain of the guard, a servant of the king of Babylon, unto Jerusalem. And he burnt the house of the Lord and the king's house and all the houses of Jerusalem. And every great man's house burnt he with fire. And the pillars of brass that were in the house of the Lord and the bases and the brazen sea that was in the house of the Lord did the Chaldees break into pieces and carried the brass of them to Babylon. And the pots and the shovels and the snuffers and the spoons and all the vessels of brass wherewith they ministered took they away. And the firepans and the bowls and such things as were of gold in gold and of silver in silver the captain of the guard took away the two pillars, one sea, and the bases which Solomon had made for the house of the Lord. The brass of all these vessels was without weight. So the Bible tells us, and note what is not discussed. One would have thought that if the ark was taken, it would have been mentioned front and center in the description of the destruction, just as the taking of the ark from Shiloh was central to that story in the book of Judges. But not only does Kings not mention the ark, In any future biblical reference to the vessels of the temple in Babylonia, the Ark of the Covenant does not appear. Thus, one could suggest that the Ark was not taken from the temple by Nebuchadnezzar's forces because it had already disappeared. But where did it go? If you look around at sources outside the Talmud, you will find that during the Second Temple period, many were clearly convinced that the Ark had been hidden. Thus, when we look to the book of Maccabees, a second temple text, we find the following description of it having been discovered in the quote-unquote records that Jeremiah hid the ark and the tabernacle in a cave. In the book of Maccabees, we find the following. Jeremiah came and found the cave dwelling, and he brought there the tent and the ark and the altar of incense. Then he sealed up the entrance. Some of those who followed him came up intending to mark the way but could not find it. When Jeremiah learned of it, he rebuked them and declared, The place shall remain unknown until God gathers his people together and shows his mercy. That's Maccabees. But the opinion in the Talmud is different. According to this rabbinic approach, the ark had been hidden in the Temple Mount itself. Recall that King Josiah had cleansed the temple of idolatry and had been warned of the destruction yet to come. According to this Talmudic opinion, which draws on a verse in Chronicles, it was Josiah, the righteous king, who hid the Ark in advance of the oncoming forces of Nebuchadnezzar, and he hid it within the Temple Mount complex itself. This opinion is later adopted by Maimonides, who adds something else that is incredible. In Maimonides' Laws of the Temple, he gives us an astonishing statement about the original blueprint of the Temple in Jerusalem. I cite the translation of Maimonides from Sepharia. Quote, There was a stone at the western side of the Holy of Holies on which the Ark was placed. And in front of it there was the jar of manna as well as the staff of Aaron. When Solomon built the temple, knowing it would at the end be destroyed, he constructed underneath a place where to hide the ark in deep and winding secret tunnels. At the command of King Josiah, it was concealed in the place which Solomon had built. End quote. Thus, Maimonides, without giving us a source, adds to the Talmudic opinion something extraordinary: his belief that a secret chamber of the temple had been placed in the mount in Jerusalem in advance in order to prepare for the destruction of the temple yet to come. And whatever Talmudic opinion one adopts, one can appreciate the sublime symbolism of Maimonides' approach. He argues that Solomon sensed that one day the temple would be destroyed and that he therefore created a secret chamber for the ark itself. The larger meaning of Maimonides' opinion, perhaps, is that the blueprint of the temple predicted and embodied Jewish history itself. It predicted the destruction that was yet to come, predicted, in other words, that the people of Israel would have enemies that sought its destruction. But the temple, Maimonides writes, also has built in a chamber in which the ark, the throne of God, can be kept forever, so that in the midst of the ruins of the temple, the temple mount would still serve as a dwelling place of the divine. In Jerusalem, For Maimonides, the Ark of God is at times public and at times hidden, but always there. And the symbolism of this approach is that in Jerusalem, the presence of God is at times miraculously manifest for the world to see, and at times of ruin, the presence of the God of Israel may be harder to see. But the Jewish people feel that it is there all the same. And when those sympathetic to this Jewish link of love, like Seward, see it, encounter it. In the Jews of Jerusalem, then they too can feel that sanctity and cite Ezekiel with reverence, and the name of the city shall be from that day forward, The Lord is there. The brief discussion of the book of Kings about what befell Jerusalem will be described in greater detail in Jeremiah, which we shall study in several weeks after Isaiah. For now, we reflect on how the story of the Jewish people is a story of. Jews that refuse to forget Jerusalem and continue to believe and to feel that God dwells there. And Seward was not the last to be inspired by this. The Catholic scholar Maria Johnson describes in her wonderful book, Strangers and Neighbors, her friendship with Orthodox Jews in her neighborhood in Scranton, Pennsylvania, and what she learned from this friendship. Johnson tells us that her first important encounter with Judaism occurred in Jerusalem, Friday evening, Sabbath, at the Western Wall. She writes, Faithful Jews, battered by the horrors of the past and the bitterness of the present, go there to mourn the destruction of the temple and the passing of the days when the Ark of the Covenant was in the Holy of Holies and the name of the God of Israel was revered everywhere. The wall is ancient. It has absorbed history, soaking it in through its pores, and it exudes the ancient, sacred, lost past into the air of the modern square with its metal detectors and lounging teenage soldiers. I am usually one to be impressed by old things. But this evening, the present was intensely more interesting than the past. The mood among the Jews who crowded the plaza to welcome the Sabbath was one not of lamentation, nostalgia, loss, or bitterness, but of joy. Deep and serious and exultant joy. Mature men with full beards and long black coats, men exuding gravitas as the wall exuded antiquity, were dancing and singing with abandon. It was alien and intense and thrilling, and it was important." What so impressed Johnson? As she seems to say, it was not only the wall itself, but the joining of the Jewish ancient past with the living Jew in the present. Johnson herself reflects how the suffusing spirit of the environs impacted her despite herself, as she put it, quote, I'm a scholar trained to keep a rein on my personal responses and to regard everything from a safe analytical distance. But there was no question of my coolly observing the scene as an interesting cultural religious phenomenon. I found myself quite certain that something really was happening as the sun slipped behind the rooftops of Jerusalem, that the whirling, singing crowds were responding to a reality greater than any culture. It mattered deeply that they were there, spinning and rejoicing and praying and welcoming Shabbos Malka, the Queen of Sabbath." This encounter inspired her friendship that was yet to come with her neighbors. And looking back, Johnson reflects in her book that, quote, It has been six years since I watched in puzzled awe as the Sabbath Queen was welcomed into the plaza by the western wall, and since then I have stood with a baby on my hip while she was welcomed into the living room of our neighbor's four doors down. I have been to a bris, to a bar mitzvah, and to parties for Hanukkah and Sukkot. Of course, I'm well over my initial silly awe and shyness, but the sense of mystery and significance that held me spellbound at the wall has not been eroded by ease and familiarity. When I watch the Shabbos candles being lit or stand on the women's side of the shul while men in striped prayer shawls cluster around a wailing infant, I feel sure that what is going on is of profound significance, and not just subjectively to the people around me, but objectively to me and to the world. I am, Johnson concludes, I am and will remain a Christian, but I am a rather different Christian now than I was before. End quote. So Johnson writes, Jewish eternity and Jerusalem are linked, and this link can serve to inspire those beyond Judaism itself. The Book of Kings ends with Jerusalem destroyed, but we know that this is not the end of the story, and the fact that this story continues today and continues today in Jerusalem is one of the greatest wonders of all. This is Meir Soloveitchik looking forward to beginning the Book of Isaiah together tomorrow, signing off.